Growing up with type 1 diabetes is hard, but with your family and healthcare team surrounding you, it can seem a lot easier. But what about when you hit the teenage years and young adulthood? As youth with type 1 diabetes reach their teens and early 20s, they can start to chafe against the restrictions type 1 diabetes puts on their lives, and then transition to an entirely new healthcare team alongside changes like starting university or moving away from home, that can be a real challenge. We know that this age group has the worst blood sugar control, and that, that isn't good for their ongoing health, but what can we do to help? I'm Krista Lamb, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, we're talking to Dr. Andrew Advani about these transitions and how to make them easier. Dr. Advani is an endocrinologist and a scientist who works at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and the Keenan Research Centre for Biomedical Science. Welcome, Dr. Advani. Hi, Krista. Thanks for having me back. Oh, I'm, we're happy to have you back. So we know that the transition from pediatric to adult care, it's really challenging for a lot of kids. They've had their parents that were real big support for them. They've had their pediatric endocrinology team. So what can we do? Well, first off, what are some of the reasons it's hard? Well, um, let's, let's think about when type 1 diabetes is diagnosed. So type 1 diabetes can happen at any time in life, but it's often diagnosed in childhood or adolescence. And when um, type 1 diabetes is first diagnosed in childhood, a lot of the responsibility for that diabetes falls upon the individual's parents. So that, remember, diabetes is a chronic condition that is relentless. It affects your daily life every day. Every day, a person living with type 1 diabetes has to measure their uh, glucose levels, has to make sure they're injecting insulin or managing their insulin pump. They worry about low blood sugars. They worry about what happens with their long-term health. And a lot of that burden lies um, with the parents when a, a young child is first diagnosed. And then there has to be a gradual handover of responsibility from parent to child. And that handover typically happens at a time of life that's a time of great flux. So people are moving away from school, um, going into higher education, uh, or going, uh, going into work, or um, take, uh, um, uh, going off to university, separating um, their relationships from their parents, valuing their peers more, more than that, and there may be uh, drug and alcohol use. Um, so it's a perfect storm. And then you have to add on to that that the healthcare system expects around about the age of roughly 18 years, an individual moves from their familiar pediatric care provider to their adult care system. So no wonder that this is a time of um, great uncertainty in the uh, individual with type 1 diabetes, their life. And as a result, this uh, is associated with lots of um, bad effects that can happen uh, in type 1 diabetes. And in our clinic here at St. Michael's Hospital, we try to uh, set up a clinic to um, look after young people at this time of life who have diabetes. And I don't think in any way that we're um, at all perfect or have the solution for, um, for, for how to help people at this stage of life, but we're, we're learning and, uh, from our patients and trying to help where we can. And you talked a little bit about the risks that are faced if you know you don't have good care at this point and so can you tell us a little bit about some of those well one of the most important risks is what's no what we call loss to follow-up and that's the uh, this is one of the things that worries me most and that's the fact that someone could slip through the net and perhaps having been comfortable with their familiar pediatric care provider for um, years and years uh, when they make that jump to the adult care setting they get lost from the system it's you know when you've got 
exams or part-time work and, and you can't schedule your appointment. Once you miss one appointment, it's easy to miss two. Um, and then you, you, you slip through the net. And often the people who I've found who've run into trouble with their diabetes are often the people who have been lost to follow-up, who then come back to the healthcare services many years later um, and we wish we'd have been able to help them in the interim. We also know at this time of life there's an increase in the risk of what's known as acute complications, so that would be low blood sugars, hypoglycemia, and an increased risk of uh, high blood sugars causing you to end up in hospital with a condition called diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, it's also a time where we might see an emergence of what's known as the long-term complications of diabetes, so things that people don't like to hear or think about, like eye disease and nerve disease and kidney disease. Um, and on top of that, you've got all the other challenges that everyone without diabetes is facing at this time of life, like um, alcohol or recreational drug use and uh, weight controlling behaviors and things like that. So no wonder that it's a challenging time. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're a student and you're starting college or university and all you want to do is go out and drink with your friends and eat tons of pizza and have all these experiences and you have to be thinking about your diabetes on top of that, it can be so overwhelming and probably really frustrating. And, and that's when you start to, I think, see youth kind of tapering off on their self-management. Well, I, th I think one of the things that I'd um, pick up on what you've said there is that everybody's on their own individual journey with diabetes, okay? So um, we, we know from the research that we've done and from talking to our patients that there are some people out there who are doing just great and we want to support them in as many any ways we can to help them living with diabetes. And then we know that other people are struggling and they have different kinds of struggles. Um, and uh, some of those are, are, are the kind of struggles that you're, you're talking about there. So it's trying to think about innovative ways where we can help people uh, at the, during this stage of life and keep them engaged. Yeah, and I mean, not to say that you, you can go out and eat pizza and have a drink when you have type 1 diabetes as well, but it's just that sort of age group where you can start to fall off a little bit on your management because it's you kind of have focus on other things. That's right, yes. And talking about long-term complications can also be really hard when you're talking to someone who's 18. So how do you have these conversations? Because I know, I mean, when I was 18, I didn't want to think about things that were going to, like 40 seems super old when you're 18. You know, 50 seems super old when you're, when you're, you know, 20. So how do you have the conversation about the long-term complications? Yeah, that's, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because I think what... There's no getting away from it that um, the evidence is there that where if diabetes control is not great uh, early on in life, it carries a long-lasting increase in the risk of complications. And um, so I, th I don't think we can shirk away from the fact that um, poor diabetes control reflected in high glucose levels increases the likelihood of long-term diabetes complications in the future. But I don't think it's a conversation we should be having uh, at every visit. And I think it's important that we frame the conversation appropriately. Um, the way I, I try and think about things, and again, I don't know that I have the, all the answers, is that I, I see this as, as a, a long-term relationship between provider and patient. And so certainly we don't typically discuss long-term complications, um, but we do try hard to uh, maintain good or support good uh, efforts at good glu glucose control. There may be a time where we have that conversation about, you know, this is what the future can hold if, if we don't um, uh, try to, to look after ourselves as well as we, we can. But I think it's really important not to have that conversation as some sort of hammer to beat someone over the, the head with. I think people with 
um, diabetes know when things are going well and know when things aren't going well, um, and they don't need to be reminded of it constantly. Like I say, I, I would think about it in terms of um, uh, a long-term relationship we're trying to build, and it's something that gets discussed over time. In our clinic, we have um, sort of three tenets of what we try and focus on, and those would be um, safety, so keeping people safe from the acute complications, um, connectivity, trying to form a connection between patient and provider, and it may not always be between endocrinologist and provider, it, it may be between nurse educator or dietitian or social worker, and we have a really, really excellent team I'm very privileged to work with in our clinic. And then the third one is empowerment, so really putting the tools to the person living with type 1 diabetes, putting the tools in their hands so that they can try and uh, do, the, do the best they can with, uh, with, the, with our support where we can offer it. And I think that's it's really important because one of the things I was going to talk to you about was also sort of having the emotional support because you need to have the support from your provider and you need to have the support from whomever is in your community and on your team, but having that sort of self-awareness and self-support. So do you often send people to you know psychologists or to talk to people about diabetes distress or anything like that in your clinic? Uh, we do. We, we, we've... Um we, we are cognizant of the challenges that diabetes distress presents and the fact that that is a real burden for a lot of people living with diabetes. So like I say, uh, we really don't, I really don't know that I have all the answers. I think um, the way I think that one of the things that we do do in our clinic is that, frankly, it feels a little bit like a family, and that's partly because um, the um, people I work with all have a mutual respect and a mutual respect for each other's roles. And I, th I hope that some of the people who come to our clinic feel like that it's part of a family and they want to come. I think that's one of the keys is that they want to come to see us and tell us about the exciting things that's going on in life. So there's the emotional support there. Um, we, we have a... Um, it, it's not always easy to get to see your endocrinologist. We're very busy with a lot of other um, commitments. Uh, I have a big role in, in research and then I see other people with uh, diabetes at other times as well. Um, but we know that our, our patients can connect with other um, team members at other times so they can connect with our nurse educator or our social worker who can do things like talk about diabetes distress and um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and as appropriate will direct to resources that are available in terms of clinical psychology or psychiatry as it's needed. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, there's so many things that are great tools that are available, but I think you're right in terms of having that, that support system, and, and I think that's an amazing part of it. And you mentioned your research, and one of the things I know that you've done through your research is to try and create some tools to help make these transitions easier, and one of those is a video series, and I, I thought maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. Oh, thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah, so we got into the videos maybe sort of three years ago, um, and this is done with a a colleague at St. Michael's Hospital, Dr. Janet Parsons. And the rationale behind this was that um, the conventional way in which the healthcare system imparts information to people is often in the form of paper handouts. Now, we know that um, many people today, not just young people, don't access information through paper handouts. But um, when I look at my own um, young adult kids now, they'll often um, access information in the form of like how-to videos on YouTube and we know that explainer videos um, these sort of short animated videos of about three minutes in length in terms of um, the business world are about 400 to 800 percent more effective at getting the message across so Janet and I had the idea to 
create some uh, explainer videos about diabetes and we connected with an animation company and we made, uh, so far we've made two animated videos. Um, they go under the umbrella of diabite size and um, we've done one on diabetic ketoacidosis and one on um, hypoglycemia and they're freely available on YouTube. We're happy to share them with other uh, clinics across Canada. Um, they uh, seem to be well received. I think collectively as of um, this week they've had around about 65,000 views. Um, they won an award from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and we've gonna, we're doing a whole series of them. So this year we're going to do a couple more, uh, one on kidney, one on diabetes and kidneys, which is my research interest, one on diabetes and eyes, and then uh, further down the line working with our dietitian, we'll be bringing out a couple on carbohydrate counting as well. So I'd encourage anyone listening, check us out on YouTube. They're a lot of fun. Absolutely, and we'll include those in the show notes so that people can check them out. So that's, that's really you know, a fantastic research because you're right. These days, you know, people give me paper all the time and I'm always like, do you have this on a website or do you have this somewhere else? So that, that's fantastic. And there's other things that people are doing around type 1 and transitions that I wanted to ask you a little bit about. Kaberi Desgupta was on the show and we talked about peer support and we had one of her peer support um, team members on the show as well. And that was something that was really interesting because we're seeing more and more of that in the outreach. So have you had any chance to work on, um, with that or any opinions on that? Yeah, I think it's a re I think, you know what, I think it's a really interesting and important area. There's a few things to touch on there. I think one of the things that, that from the medical and the research community, when they evaluate interventions like peer support, it's important to understand that the conventional sort of medical metrics that someone would use to evaluate the success of research, like hemoglobin A1c or something like that are probably not the right metrics for this patient population. But we do know from literature evidence that peer support does bring about benefits in terms of uh, improving glucose control, potentially reducing hypoglycemia, certainly improving um, people's ability to stick with their treatment plans and reducing the risk of diabetes distress. So I think peer support is a great idea. It's, it's how that... Um, how that's packaged together. So there's a, w w one of the things to just consider when you talk about peer support that I was reading about recently is the concept of the opposite side to that, which is peer orientation. So that's the idea that someone value, values, extremely values the opinion of others. And we know from recent literature evidence that when people, has a, people have a strong value of other people's opinion, that relates often to poor diabetes control. But that can be counterbalanced potentially by having peer support through other people living with diabetes. So it's just something we're dipping our toe into in, in our clinic. We asked our patients recently how they would like us to develop our services. And um, one of the issues was around about flexibility in terms of scheduling appointments. And we recognize that because people don't always have control over their um, time in their lives. And the second thing was um, about getting together with other people with it, uh, living with diabetes. And actually, we had our first social night last month. We went axe throwing, oh, actually. Oh, yeah. So we had about um, uh, about 36 people came, and it was a whole lot of fun. And I, and I, I believe that it was well-received, and uh, we'd certainly like to, to do more of those uh, kind of uh, groups. So I think that's where I see we can support peer support um, through our own services. And I think one of the questions that that leads me back to is, you know, what advice do you give to healthcare providers about transitions, about these, you know, because it can be really challenging. Often you're only seeing the person for a few minutes. You maybe as an endocrinologist don't have the support of a program like yours. So what can people be thinking about, though, at least? So um, as, I, as I say, you know, I, I don't feel I've got all the answers. 
Um, I would say that there's a number of things that I've learned over the past maybe 10 years looking after young people with diabetes. Um, the first is to recognize that everybody is on their own individual journey and that we as um, providers need to be adapting our tools to help people according to where they are on their journey as to, as to how they would help us to, to uh, how we can help them. And the second thing I'd say is don't assume knowledge because remember if this individual was diagnosed in childhood it was often that the parents received a lot of that education and often they tell us that when they come to the adult services there's an expectation that they understand things like carbohydrate counting or alcohol use and diabetes or exercise and diabetes and a lot of the time their knowledge is just not there because they haven't been provided with it. Um, the third thing that I've come to reflect on a lot is um, I would recommend providers to be careful about conversations around hemoglobin A1c. So A1c is um, a, a blood test that's done that gives us an idea about what people's blood glucose control has been like over the past three months. Um, and it's usually given to people, the results usually given to people when they come to the office. Um, and it gives a reflection of how um, sugar control has been like over the past three months. And it correlates the higher the A1c, the greater the risk of long-term complications. But at the end of the day, this is a metric of populations. And the biggest predictors of poor A1c are, or the biggest predictors of A1c at all are educational level and A1c at time of referral, both of which are outside the control of the young person who's coming to see you in the clinic. So don't use the A1c as a hammer to beat someone over the head, over the head with. A lot of people with diabetes talk about A1C almost in moralistic terms as being good or bad, and it's often the source of a lot of conflict when they go home. Um, so I would say um, don't overvalue the importance of that in terms of uh, an indicator of glucose control. Try and look at the whole person beyond just the simple uh, glucose control uh, metric. I think being flexible with um, appointment scheduling and uh, is, is important because the, the often young people don't have control over their schedules like people later on in life do. If they've got exams, if they're traveling, uh, part-time work, it, they may have to reschedule their appointments at, um, uh, at short notice. And finally, uh, I would say the thing I've most learned is to enjoy the interactions because it's an incredibly um, uh, interesting group of individuals to interact with. Everybody's got really interesting stories and I really like hearing them and trying to help them on their journey. That's amazing. And you touched on one thing I wanted to go back to because you mentioned that so many times people come in and their parents have been sort of the keepers of their, their type 1 diabetes. They've been taking care of them for 18 or more years and they don't always have the knowledge. Is there any advice you'd give to parents to help them make those transitions easier? Um, so advice to parents, I would say, is first of all, you're not alone. There are other parents who are also worrying about their young adult offspring as well. So there are other people who are going through it as well. Second thing is your provider recognizes that um, you are um, feeling, you may be feeling a lot of worry, um, but also understand that the young person with diabetes um, is often after the age at which they're considered a legal adult, which means there's certain privacy restrictions around what a provider can, what information a provider can share with you. Um, and um, if they're not sharing, it may be because they're trying to establish that relationship with the, with the patient and make that, uh, the patient feel comfort, confident in, um, in uh, that relationship. In terms of 
guiding the relationship between the parent and their child who's becoming a young adult. I don't, obviously, every family is unique. I think what we've learned from the literature and what we've learned from hearing back our, from our own parent, uh, parents and patients is trying to foster a, a relationship that encourages the assumption of responsibility from the young person living with diabetes and the gradual handover of responsibility. So trying to empower that individual to take control so they feel contr in control and in charge. So maybe encouraging them to schedule their own appointments, fill their own scripts, take responsibility for completing um, the forms that need done for university accommodations or access to services. Um, so a, a, a encouraging, empowering relationship and being involved as much as your child wants you to be involved is probably a good thing. The arguments at home around have you pricked your fingers and tested your blood glucose, they're probably not beneficial. And if you can try and limit those, it's probably going to help your, your child in the long run. Oh, that is great advice. A lot of really great advice today. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So thank you again to Dr. Advani. And if you're interested in learning more about his videos, we'll put them in the show notes. And if you have any questions or comments about today's show or a suggestion for future guests or topics, you can share them at info at diabetes.ca or via social media. You can always find Diabetes Canada on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook at Diabetes Canada. And as always, you can download episodes and subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.